Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. My guest today is Michael Fishbane, the Nathan Cummings Distinguished Service Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Perhaps no other scholar has exerted a more decisive influence over Jewish studies over the last half century than Michael Fishbane. In diverse subfields, including rabbinics, biblical interpretation, modern Jewish thought, and Jewish mysticism, among others, Professor Fishbane has brought a comprehensive knowledge of Jewish history into contact with deep readings of Jewish text. In recent years, he's turned these powers and his attention to groundbreaking works of Jewish theology that address the whole modern person in all her complexity and perplexity. His Sacred Attunement, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2008, presented a theology of attunement of the divine, mundane, and human spheres of existence through profound engagement with text, art, and life. His 2015 commentary to the biblical book of Shira Shirim, or Song of Songs, published by the Jewish Publication Society, brought Jewish mystical hermeneutics to the creation of an historical theology through an ancient text that celebrates the mysteries of both human love and covenant love between God and Israel. In his latest work, Fragile Finitude, published this year by the University of Chicago Press, Professor Fishbane extends this fourfold interpretive framework into a Jewish hermeneutical theology that shows the reader the path toward deep encounter and deep meaning through engagement with life and text and life as text. Michael Fishbane joins me today to talk about fragile finitude. Professor Fishbane, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you so much, David, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to participate in the podcast and to share some thoughts about my new book. And I should uh, say for our listeners, uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, that you were a key advisor to me in my uh, doctoral studies at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And so um, that's going to color my enthusiasm for the book and my eagerness to talk to you about it. Again, I really appreciate you making yourself available. Wonderful. First of all, I'm interested to explore with you your turn to theology. I want to know if you could talk to us a little bit about what led you to make this turn and how it emerged from and meshes with your ongoing scholarly work. Well, this is a very powerful and personal question, David. Um, Let me take a slight step back um, and say, um, as you know, historical scholarship requires great discipline to help uh, older texts and cultures speak in their own voice uh, and to give voice um, to them on their own terms. Nevertheless, as scholars, we invariably introduce contemporary values and contemporary valences of meaning, if only by virtue of the methods that we uh, choose and the frames of analysis that we uh, use. So even in terms of historical scholarship, a personal voice is always embedded. 
But in addition, it's important to recognize that in historical theology or historical theological scholarship in all of its varieties, what was what we deem to be historical theology was in its own creative moment, constructive or personal theology. That is, mm-hmm. people were mm-hmm. writing in their own moment with their own concerns and with their own valences. Now, these two factors, which can't eliminate the notion of a personal voice within history, have combined with my lifelong interest in the diverse Jewish theologies uh, and how they've applied personally uh, to my own life. At a certain point, I realized uh, that I was uh, really a type of historical ventriloquist and speaking other people's voices. Mm-hmm. And it took a while uh, really to get the courage uh, to speak in my own voice and to bring the contemporary situation as I understand it and the historical range of Jewish sources to bear. And so um, I wrote Sacred Attunement, as you mentioned, in 2008, and Fragile Finitude is an attempt to continue this integration of a personal voice with the voices of tradition. It's a little bit risky, um, but it's uh, something that I think um, we all try to do in our own uh, personal ways. Uh, This was an attempt to do this in print uh, and to share it with other people who may be similarly concerned and similarly perplexed about how to live a Jewish theological life in our in our own day. Wonderful. So you I might want you to say a little bit more about what makes it risky. Can you just tell me sort of what uh, what is what in it feels to you like stepping out a little further on the diving board of your life's work? Well, one of the features I would say is that in writing a theology um, there's a concern uh, to speak in a contemporary voice and to speak in a voice that um, other people will understand. At the same time, um, it has to be very personal, Mm -hmm. uh, but personal, but not idiosyncratic. So the task of the writer is to how to give voice to something that elicits deep personal concerns, even uh, private concerns, but to do so in a way that is resonant with uh, a contemporary culture, and it isn't simply a private language. Um, so from right. that point of view, um, uh, it, it takes a risk of how to be personal, um, um, but not so personal that to make it appear to be a kind of a, a private discourse and not something that other people um, can respond to. Right, right. The subtitle of your book, Fragile Finitude, describes it as a work of Jewish hermeneutical theology. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what that is, uh, what resources one needs in order to engage in such a theology and engage with such a theology, and what you want people to be attentive to through this theological framework. Let me try to sort out this uh, very complex but important uh, issue. Um, So Jewish historical theology Uh, signals, um, I hope, to the readers um, that Jewish theology is not something abstract or purely intellectual, but is always an interpretive uh, project. That is to say, it's always engaged in some way with an interpretation uh, of Scripture or the Hebrew Bible um, through various modes of uh, hermeneutical uh, engagement or interpretive strategies. 
Mm-hmm. And this, this applies uh, both to the most primary construal of um, linguistic or verbal meaning, uh, grammatical meaning, but of course it means the same at every single level of interpretation um, so that uh, all Jewish theology is an interpretive or hermeneutical act responding to the text or its themes and practices. Mm-hmm. So what that, what that really means um, for um, as a preparation or for an understanding of the background um, is realizing uh, the, uh, the, the multi-millennial history of Jewish scriptural interpretation uh, because the, uh, the Bible is the spiritual core of Judaism but it's not a core that has been received simply in its literal sense, but it has gone through um, multiple interpretive uh, filters uh, of understanding and application, reinterpretation, um, as Judaism has come in uh, both initially in the Bible, responded to the ancient Near Eastern civilization, but uh, beginning with Philo, the response to the Stoic or Greek world, responding to the Greco-Roman world uh, in the world of Midrash Mm -hmm. or or the world of medieval philosophy, Aristotle or Kabbalah, Neoplatonism, and then down to the modern period. So part of the background is this awareness that while the Bible um, is the matrix, um, it has um, been filtered and is reactive to and um, integrates the multiple cultures within which Jewish civilization um, has been engaged. So it's a, uh, an ongoing interpretive and creative act of application uh, and appropriation. And this is part of what you discuss in terms of there being, um, of Sinai as being a sort of initial revelatory act that goes on in a sense being revealed through interpretation. Is that roughly accurate? Yes. Um, so Sinai, um, as I stated already in Sacred Attunement and then in the pivotal um, parts of Fragile Finitude, that's, that's both the spiritual and historical and cultural matrix of Judaism. Sinai is the pivot. It's the moment um, uh, which, which represents um, the, uh, from private individuals to a public theology, to a communal theology, mm-hmm. represents the challenge um, of a divine voice, uh, of a voice of authority that has to be received and then reinterpreted and collectively uh, appropriated and adapted. Um, it becomes um, the signal point of the, um, the historical becoming uh, of the biblical and rabbinic tradition. Um, it's not for nothing that many rabbinic uh, texts say that if, if a person is studying they should uh, regard themselves as if they, at this particular moment, are receiving the text, that the text is a living voice. Mm-hmm. So um, the living voice uh, that appeared at Sinai, according to tradition, becomes a written voice, but the oral tradition and the tradition of ongoing interpretation uh, brings Sinai back into the, uh, the, the living responsibility of what it means uh, to hear Scripture in an ongoing way. And so theology and even written theology is giving um, written voice um, to this ongoing project. It's so interesting because the way you frame your theology is something that you actually used uh, close to the beginning of your career uh, to frame a sort of philosophy of teaching 
in an article you wrote in 1974 for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, which you pointed out to me, you discussed the hermeneutical task of the teacher. And there you used the same fourfold structure that's informed your more recent theological work. I wonder if you can say something about, first of all, what this fourfold, uh, what we call Pardes framework is, and how it's helped to inform and integrate your life's work as a teacher, a scholar, and a theologian. Certainly. Uh, well, let me first um, briefly articulate uh, what the acronym Pardes stands for, and then how it plays itself out into um, these different levels. So the P of pardes uh, refers to the pshat or the um, contextual meaning, the plain sense, not so much the uh, literal sense, but it's the plain contextual sense so that we understand the word in its context. Uh, When we talk about um, the next historical level, which is the D, in Paradise, which is drash, which means interpretation, it means that the, the voice of the scripture becomes part of the communal effort of a rabbinic interpretation, both theology um, and halakha, or legal uh, interpretation. Uh, and uh, characteristically, midrash, or the drash element, means that you move not only from one contextual sense, but to begin to read intertextually. That is to say, you begin to read within the framework of other similar resonances within scripture. Uh, Obviously, as a basic teacher, when I began uh, dealing with Paradise, I wanted to help people realize what is the meaning of a word? How does it fit into context? Mm. Uh, And then um, what are the intertextual or intercanonical or intercultural resonances um, of that word? So when I first began using it, those are the first two levels of trying to help people appropriate this pedagogically. The third level, the R of Pardes, is remes, which means um, a hint, but it often, uh, or illusion, and it was often used in terms of allegory um, or philosophical uh, meanings. So when I began first using this uh, for, um, uh, for pedagogical purposes, this was to make people realize that words don't have meaning in and of themselves, but they are attributed meanings by by the context, by the association, by the intertextuality, uh, by what people bring to that particular word, um, and then it gives it meaning in a particular historical setting. The the S of sowed is the more mysterious um, um, uh, level in which words retain a hidden underground, that they have a kind of secret resonance. That's what I wanted to convey way back in 1974 when I was dealing with it (laughs) at a pedagogical level. Um, To repeat that from the point of view of Jewish historical theological uh, context, again, the pshat is the historical nature. What are the meanings of the word? How that word was understood over various times as lexicographical meanings uh, deepened uh, and people were interpreting scripture as they began to understand the meaning of words or metaphors and so on. Um, The drash is of course all the historical theological scholarship that has emerged through uh, Midrash and its own creative acts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remez then became um, all of the um, uh, interpretive uh, moves of, of, uh, let us say, philosophical or or moral understandings of the text. And the Sod 
was the the whole range of Kabbalistic or mystical meanings uh-huh. that extend outward. Now, when I um, when I was casting about trying to figure how could I organize a modern Jewish theology, um, I obviously wanted it to speak in a human voice in terms of our living experience, but it has to be, I wanted it to be grounded in Jewish, traditional Jewish structure. So uh, it came to me probably from my earliest intuitions that the Parade structure was a living um, structure. Mm-hmm. And let me just briefly articulate what that means in terms of my fragile finitude, in terms of that um, spectrum of meaning. So when I uh, begin my theology, and I want to talk about the pshat level, I'm really talking about what it means to be a human being embedded in the world, Mm -hmm. a human being uh, with physical needs, with emotional concerns, who wakes up um, to the throbbing of nature and to the nature of, of light to sound, to feelings. Um, this is, of course, uh, every human being, the, the, the universal um, person um, who is born, who is hungry, who gets sick and who dies. And I tried to develop through uh, rabbinic uh, and Jewish interpretation what that primary sense of breathing and seeing and responding to the world, of being an interpretive or hermeneutical person, that everything we're doing is interpreting the world, its colors, its sounds, um, from the beginning to the end. And in this regard, every moment is the coal or the voice of God that's calling calling one. So it's very Mm -hmm. much a a word theology, a speech and a dialogical uh, theology. Uh, And of course, as you indicate, Sinai is the paradigm structure for the voice that calls any individual, but particularly my theology, a Jewish person, um, to attentiveness and to life. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the individual, qua individual. Drash means that we're not only individuals universal of a universal nature, but we're also people in culture. Um, for the Jew, it's a person in Jewish culture, that, which I'm particularly concerned about. That means you move from an I voice to a... Uh, a we voice, to a collective voice. It means that the language that we had begun by using it, but never give up, when I look at the world and I express gratitude and I express wonder and I express thankfulness or sorrow, um, I don't simply do that uh, in a neutral, I, personal language. I do that in a collective language. I I begin to make the world sacred. There's a sacramentalizing of the world Uh, My response to the world now is the world of collective prayer, gratitude, petition, concern. I celebrate something beyond myself in terms of historical events. I celebrate events with family, with people. Now, I'm very much concerned that um, we recognize that we live at multiple levels, and so we never lose that first uh, universal personal sense. Um, even as you become a cultural or let us say a Jewish person within the covenant who adds to this the language uh, of blessing, the language of historical interpretation, the language of traditional texts, which become a new filter for understanding what it means to see, what it means to hear, what it means um, to have um, memory and life up through uh, through the text, uh, that we live at 
plural and multi-level simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Now, when I turned to the, the, the third level, which was the, the remes, I asked myself the question, well, if you live at a communal level, um, what do you do with your own inner striving for ethical and spiritual and psychological development and perfection? And it was here in this uh, remes section that I uh, developed a whole series uh, of moves of um, t- adapting numerous Jewish techniques for moral, spiritual, and psychological refinement and development um, to, so that the individual now remains an individual but grows within the language of the tradition. So the tradition mm-hmm. also gives you the space for personal growth. That doesn't nullify, of course, again, the pshat level of just being a mortal being. And then the final level, which is the sod, is that even as we live within a community and we live uh, with the awareness of multiple communities, um, we also live uh, within a cosmic context. And so I have adapted the soul or the mystical level, not simply to talk about some arcane theosophical dimension, which is certainly um, the valid and the powerful uh, language of medieval Kabbalah or uh, mystical theology, but it's now uh, the language, how should I say it? It's the language of a cosmic consciousness. It's the awareness that our world um, extends downward into the infinity of possibilities and upward um, into the infinity of universes where time and space change, where the notion of orientation. Um, so when I have all of these levels together, it's also, um, and I'd like to hear your reaction to this, uh, it's that a contemporary theology has to be a pluralistic theology. Pluralistic in the sense that we live simultaneously at multiple levels, the I, the we, the cosmic, the inner psychic. And of course, different moments mean that we put the pressure point um, at, uh, on one aspect or another, but these other valences don't disappear, and they inform who uh, the person is. I, I very much am reactive to attempts to kind of reduce theology to one thing. It's only mm-hmm. law. It's only yeah. spirituality. It's only the literal meaning of the text. Um, we don't live that way, and um, uh, I wanted a theology to be resonant with all of those, uh, and um, being aware that Interpretation is fluid. It's it's um, uh, it's time bound. It's 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 affected by speech. It's affected by awareness. Um, and um, I think that keeping these multiple levels in mind uh, uh, gives us a deeper sense of personhood, um, and it also allows us to move from um, the the mortal finite individuality to the cosmic sense of responsibility and awareness, which uh, one might um, you know, shelve or put into the background uh, when a person is either concerned with their um, parochial or particular cultural life, or if a person is, let us say, uh, only concerned with their intra-psychic spiritual 
reactivity and development. I think that last point is is quite interesting um, in terms of the the reaction that I wanted to pose to you. And one is that we do, you point out beautifully in the book and, and illustrate this with examples, which I'll get to in a minute. You, you illustrate how the human experience is one that's lived at multiple levels. And yet, as you also point out, the world does not turn on a human axis. And this means many different things. Among the, among the resonances that it presents to the sensitive reader and the student of theology are A, that all of experience received is always already interpreted, number one. And number two, the hermeneutical stance of, of reflection on the human experience can blind one to the larger cosmic resonances of where that experience comes from. And in that regard, uh, it's it's interesting to me that all this is present. You bring all of this out through your references to an interpretation of the book of Job, which plays a vital role in the formation of your hermeneutical theology, because Job uh, and his interlocutors are at different levels and at different times extremely um, rigid about the way they interpret experience and whether and to what extent they see experience is framed around human, the human. But in your, in your interpretation, the book informs this whole multi-leveled theological philosophical framework. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about about how this book does that and how your theology um, has come to uh, reflect and discover this in the book of Job and what we can learn from it. Yes, well, you, you framed this so beautifully and so powerfully. Let me um, make a few comments and then perhaps we can have a little bit of a dialogue on, on the book of Job itself sure. uh, as you so I was asking myself, and I've already alluded to the fact that a, a Jewish theology um, has its pivot of the Hebrew Bible. But how do you begin a theology that regrounds theology from within the Bible so that the Bible can become a new source book for the radical nature of what it means to think theologically? Mm -hmm. And so I turn to the book of Job in the very first instance because it reopens theology from within, because it's a critique of theology. Yeah, it becomes a right. critique of theological platitudes, um, where people have passed down certain kinds of traditional understandings, um, and that they are caught in a loop of justification uh, and retrenching um, without asking whether this is the real question. The great irony of the book of Job, of course, is that all of this is a really test that's taking place on another plane in heaven, as it were. Mm. Uh, and the people down below don't really know that, uh, or realize that they are within this kind of echo chamber of themselves. Um, and um, so that they're um, bandying about and trying to justify certain types of issues of evil or suffering without realizing um, that the questions they're posing are traditional questions, which um, may have arisen uh, for very good uh, uh, scriptural or other reasons, but that life demands uh, ongoing um, integrity. And Job represents 
um, it becomes a way for me to insert a person of integrity, a person who tries to hold their own, who mm -hmm. uh, uh, keep a, a, an honest moral voice, and yet um, never denies the power of tradition or the power of ritual or God. It's a, que it's a question of how God God's voice um, lives. Now, um, in a certain sense, um, this theological discourse breaks down because the friends keep going around and around in their own circle, and Job keeps um, says that he he can't deny what he understood, then, namely his own integrity and his own honesty. Um, and um, so, in a certain sense, the book that cycle of um, discourse breaks down, and when the divine voice appears, it asks impossible questions about mm -hmm. how one stands within the cosmos, not with, um, right. it bypasses the individual, it bypasses the cultural, it bypasses the traditionally theological. And it asks quite like, were you there when the heavens were hung out? Do you understand why an ostrich does what it does? Um, how a lizard does its mysterious things? Why animals do the most um, uh, um, god-awful things that they crush their young and, and others uh, hover and take care of them? Job can't answer. And mm -hmm. part of what this then does for me is it re-embeds um, the theological imagination back into unanswerable mystery. It, re it, it returns us to the mystery of the world, to unanswerable questions, but the need to take a stand, um, to, um, right. uh, 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 to, to make choices, um, uh, to realize um, the... Um, uh, that thing, while things are beyond one's grasp, um, one has to bend to this in humility, which is, in a certain sense, what Job uh, first does. So there's a kind of an ontological acknowledgement of the vastness of the universe. Uh, he, and he with this realization that he is dust and ashes. Yes. But at the same time, God says that the friends have not spoken nechona, uh, correctly about him as Job has done. And one of the things that, that is to say, there's an acknowledgement of integrity of not giving up one's individual voice. But at the same time, the first thing that Job does is that um, he uh, helps and takes care of the friends who had been criticizing him. Notice he becomes aware in his larger awareness that others are striving for to live, to eat, and also to find meaning. And he develops a new form of creature sympathy, not only world sympathy with the vastness uh, of animals that have to kill to survive, but a new sympathy um, with, the, with the human condition that yeah, uh, yeah. people are, are, are striving to make meaning. Um, and so it becomes the turn, uh, we might say, uh, the turn to an ontological ethics without a theological do's and don'ts. Um, he becomes aware from the very vastness of the universe um, that there are things um, that we're called to do and there are things uh, that we're not called to do. And, and of course, the book of Job, the voice of God in the book of Job is not a theological revelation. It's a, it's a narrative voice of theology. So in other words, we're, we're, we're being forced to recognize um, that we... That we how we give uh, voice to the mystery of the universe. And so this becomes mm -hmm. the starting point, in a sense, 
to move from a natural theology that's embedded in scripture, the mystery of the universe, the nature of fragile finitude in a sense, mm-hmm. and then to move from there into the language of tradition, beginning with that shot individual voice and all the way up to the cosmic. In other words, once you have that natural awareness, um, how do you move then um, to this level uh, of living an embodied and informed uh, and historical life that's filled with the resonances um, uh, of tradition? So uh, Job then, uh, just to repeat, is it, it grounds us in the mystery um, it, it helps us um, develop the voice of integrity, um, yeah. and it um, uh, it gives us a new path forward um, towards traditional theology after we've gone through this about-face of what it means um, to awaken to the mystery of existence and to the presumptions of theological discourse. That's really interesting because the suffering that Job endures and the interpretations that his friend give to his suffering uh, can tend to actually open the floodgates through which the uh, necessity of hearing the divine voice comes. On some level, one finds oneself wishing that Job did not have to so suffer and in fact, one of the one of the theological interpretations can be that this is not a book primarily about suffering. It's about hearing and sensing uh, the divine and our obligations to the divine in each moment and in each instantiation, whether that instantiation is human or creaturely or cosmic or vegetable or mineral. That once open to those aspects of the presence of the divine, we begin to hear. Well, you know, David, it's, it's, it's so beautiful that you put it this way because um, you, you're intuiting and saying everything that I was concerned about. That is to say, the book of Job is what we'd say in more technical language, it's proleptic, it's anticipatory. Mm-hmm. Everything that I was dealing with there um, in the non-normative Jewish context that is, um, is proleptic, um, the longing for meaning, the limits of interpretation, the limits of our lives, the longing um, for association and interpretation, um, everything there um, is anticipatory of where the book will move. So it grounds the move into theology from an anti-theological theology. Yeah, right, right. So interesting. You know, I I wanted to ask you too, briefly about the role that memory plays in your theology. As your student, as you know, I became enthralled with the influence of memory on the ongoing, as you say, proleptic formation of Jewish interpretive stances. And from a theological perspective, uh, the resonances of ongoing revelation through the interaction between interpretation and memory. Can you talk about how crucial and in what ways memory is crucial to your theology? And and in fact, what kind of memory are we talking about? Because it seems to me that when we in the West think about memory, we think about uh, accurate representations moved from the mental sphere into the recording of an objective archive. Is that what we're talking about here or, or is it something more or different than that? 
Uh, it's more or different, um, uh, but it begins uh, at that first level, obviously. Uh, uh, let me... Um, it, the, the issue um, pervades the entire book, but I give a, a particular vector and valence to it in the um, remis section. And mm-hmm. as what I decided to do, I wanted to try to figure out how do you talk about inner spiritual development and, and, um, uh, and perfection of self? And it, it occurred to me at the end of the traditional morning prayer book and a traditional Jewish morning prayer book, there are sort of what's called the, the Sheva Zechirot, the, um, uh, the seven moments of memory to remember that you came out of Egypt, to remember that you stood at Sinai. Because each, there are seven key times that the word Zachar or to remember appears in scripture, and a person is to call to that at the end of the prayer service every day. I realized that I could use that um, as a way of thinking about this larger problem of memory. So, uh, in other words, the the issue of memory uh, in fragile finitude is the retrieval of cultural memory Mm. um, and retrieval of oneself, of individual memory through cultural memory and through its reintegration and reinterpretation. So, for example, um, when you turn to the memory of coming out of Egypt, the coming out of Egypt is not simply the retrieval of some kind of historical, factual detail, but it's every moment of emerging from servitude. It's every moment uh, of coming out of inner constraint. It's every moment uh, of development and the notion of freedom. Um, uh, It's this repeated attempt um, um, to become a new person or to turn to society and help other societies become historically liberated from whatever bondage uh, would have to be done. So you have mm. to, how do you read that narrative so that you recover levels of your own servitude, that you cover levels of a cultural um, discourse that's been smothered uh, and is in servitude and you're trying to retrieve it? Or if you move towards... Um, Sinai. It's that issue of recovering the primary moment of historical voice that we identify culturally with a particular historical moment, uh, broadly understood. But that uh, every moment of hearing, every moment of awareness is a renewal of that Sinai. And we rethink that as we reread that narrative. What does it mean to purify yourself before you come to that place, to move mm. from bondage um, to hearing a voice of responsibility. What does it mean to hear and to say, um, uh, we will hear and we will do, to take upon oneself uh, obligation? Um, or another use of memory is the, is the issue, uh, here it becomes a little bit more ethically thorny, the issue of uh, remembering um, the persecution uh, of the Amalekites when they attacked uh, the Israelites on their way out. So this be- has become... For historical memory, um, the memory of, of the past, of suffering, of persecution, but it also becomes the place to retrieve um, um, uh, uh, a, a, a kind of lost, a kind of lost level, um, uh, a return of the repressed, to realize mm-hmm. that one uh, bears all kinds of antagonisms, and that those antagonisms um, can uh, can eat one alive. That one. Um, that memory sometimes can be destructive, that you hold on to certain memories and they can be um, uh, uh, keep, keep anger 
alive that can be culturally destructive or another level of memories? How do you retrieve, um, speaking about Miriam's misuse of speech, remembering her false use of speech becomes the occasion of of a deeper level of what linguistic memory is, the different layers of memory, the different ways we use retrieving our own uh, our own private archive uh, of memory, uh, of releasing that. So um, uh, for a Jewish theology, one is always circling back and underneath and through historical narratives um, to rethink personality, soci- sociology, culture, and imagination, and even project uh, towards the future to what the past um, has suggested as a um, as an earlier uh, as an earlier de- cultural deposit. So you this start- is so interesting because you know it reflect it makes one reflect in a different way on God's questions to Job. Were you there when the heavens were created? For example, causes one to reflect on the the rather well-known rabbinic interpretation that on some essential level, we all were present at Sinai on an objective embodied level. We weren't. But the question that God poses to Job can cause each of us to question, where was I in each moment of my life? Where, where was I situated when I made this choice? And where was God? Where was I in relation to cosmic awareness? And that opens levels of memory to interpretation that can create a profound and really complex theological stance toward the world. Yes. I, I, so I think that um, this is, um, it's, it's so interesting, uh, and it's really for a much larger conversation, but of course, mm. one would have to play off the polarity between memory and forgetting. Um, yes. And, and, it's, uh, and it's played off as a dialectical polemic throughout scripture. At the same time, um, uh, it's very interesting that many uh, rabbinic interpreters picking up on the language of forgetting lishkoach or shichacha return one um, to the uh, to the agricultural tradition that if you're gleaning things and you drop them, uh, it's called shicha. Uh, you have to leave them. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do with things that have fallen out of your uh, grasp? Um, how do you uh, do? You leave them for another. How do you do? You, um, or do you have to go back and re- uh, retrieve them? What do you do uh, right. with things that you leave alone? So the rabbinic tradition not only plays with that word to remembering all of its nuances, but how it plays off against uh, forced forgetting or uh, unforced forgetting. Yeah. And then, uh, as as we're saying, when things slip out of hand. Uh, and they drop. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, who's um, uh, what? What do we do with that? So um, it's 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 a huge uh, spectrum, and um, uh, the interpretive act uh, in Judaism of constantly rereading these passages means that we're heir to two thousand years of reflection on this. But that doesn't take us off the hook. <laughs> That's right. That's right. In other words, what the Hasidic masters always say is if scripture um, is meaningful and eternal, they would say, uh, what does it mean to me right now in my life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, so you're never off the hook. You always have to say, um, uh, where do I stand? Or uh, right. answering God's question, where, where were you? Where are you? Uh, yes. 
uh, that's the ayeka. Maybe it's an ayeka, exactly. Maybe, maybe there is a um, um, uh, a, uh, an, an opening and a closing of the or a kind of a parenthesis where in the Garden of Eden, God says, "Ayeka, where are you?" Uh, and, and then, then there's, "Where were you?" This this constantly mm. of these two calls to consciousness. Yes, yes. It seems to me uh, that implicit in your theology, there's a critique of postmodern academic approaches to textual interpretation, and in G- indeed to to Jewish religion and Jewish culture writ large. Is there something to my impression on that uh, uh, that impression on my part? Am I accurate in sensing that critique? Uh, let me let me gesture towards an answer, and then hear what you have to say. I mean, I. I think it's extremely important for um, historical scholars to recognize how much they insert their own questions, even against their own positivistic historical desire, um, into the discussion, and how vital it is to choose and to live topics um, that are absolutely um, crucial um, for um, uh, ongoing cultural knowledge and transmission. I think mm. that one of the te- one of the problems of the postmodern uh, um, uh, interp- hermeneutical or linguistic turn is that there's no meaning. Um, that meaning is constantly chasing after another meaning. Um, that meaning is only in the eyes of the beholder. Um, and I think um, it's important to recognize that, that um, you. Every we have to have the courage to take a stand with with particular meanings. Um, that meaning can, that the interpretation may be an ongoing process, but there's a moral responsibility to say, what am I choosing here and now? Why did I interpret this here and now? Um, what is its implication um, for scholarship? What is its implication for culture? And what is its implication um, for Judaism? I, I, I think that there. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm concerned to, in a certain sense, widen the range um, uh, of questions, but to force a self-consciousness of ourselves as interpretive and evaluative creatures and to take moral responsibility um, for the choices um, that we're making. It's not simply um, uh, an abstract, scientific, as if science was without personal engagement, that it's simply something objective or that it's something um, so meaningless that you can never, there's no meaning in the text, as they would say, or there's no text in this class. It's just, (laughs) you're going, uh, you have to, uh, Judaism is predicated on making a stand for a canon. So there's a certain moment of closure. I'm reading this text, not another, but then I'm opening it up to all kinds of possibilities and I'm, and I'm living in that tension. Um, so uh, it's it's this encouragement to take a spiritual and moral stand at, at, at these various points. So that, I mean, that Which is a, interesting because the the whole, the work as a whole, really your theological work as a whole, and indeed your scholarly work, is is you taking that stand not only in the specific way that you spell out your hermeneutical theology, but also just the fact that you did it. Uh, well, I must say that's moving to hear you say that. Um, I would hope that for my readers, um, but also for my students, that that is part of that legacy, that it can be mm-hmm. done, that mm-hmm. it can be done, and that there's a task um, to be done. Um, 
Uh, and that maybe that brings us back to the very beginning of yes. what of the risk. Yes. The risk. The risk yes. is um, uh, there's no there's no final answer, um, and we live uh, as it were on a wobbly pivot, um, uh, and uh, we're spinning and we're wobbling, but we. Um, but but it's but it's here and now, uh, and um, so there's risk to that. Um, but but we have to do something with our interpretations, grounded in a whole vast uh, cultural history. Uh, yes. But our but our moment is a uh, a reception of Sinai um, as it comes to us, and that that's filled with fear and trembling. That's beautifully beautifully said. And I I speaking of the fact that we are never fixed and always moving. My, my last question for you is what project will command your attention next? Uh, well, I, I'm trying to locate something that's appropriate, that's age appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a young person anymore and it has to be age appropriate in terms of um, what do I still want to learn? What do I still want to think about? And what mm-hmm. do I want to be doing with the years of clarity and spiritual growth that I that I, I may have, so one I, I could just say briefly that one thing is that I'm re-engaged with Hasidic hermeneutics, uh, precisely mm. because um, uh, it, 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 it's both a, it, it forces one to think about oneself as an interpreter and applying the text uh, personally as, as part of a cultural enterprise. And the other aspect is um, um, in the middle of a book of various chapters. Uh, I wanted to kind of use this time in my life um, to think about um, specific questions that, that, are, that still engage me at this moment and then begin to put them together. So, for example, one question um, that really bears a little bit on what we've been talking about is not just how I see with my natural eye, but what does it mean to see spiritually? What mm. And how does it a cultural tradition help one see beyond the surface. Um, so one of the chapters in the book will will deal with that. <laughs> well, we, uh, speaking for myself, certainly I eagerly anticipate um, your uh, extremely erudite and deeply informed uh, approach to those questions. And I want to uh, say how much I've enjoyed this conversation and how chagrined I am that we are out of time. I want to thank you, David, both for the invitation, um, but for the informed and personal um, questions. Um, They come from a scholar, but they come from a student and a person I greatly admire. So I want to thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. My guest today has been Michael Fishbane, Nathan Cummings, Distinguished Service Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And we've been discussing his latest book, Fragile Finitude, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. Professor Fishbane, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.